0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the twelfth chapter, verses 54 to 57, verses 54 to 57 in the twelfth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And he said also to the people, when ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why, even of yourselves, judge ye not what is right. Now this is one of those vital and crucial statements made by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He here seems to be expressing his amazement and astonishment at the reaction of the men and women of his own day and his own generation to him and to his preaching. There is nothing, perhaps, which shows us more clearly the truth concerning the fact that our Lord was truly men as well as truly God, as some such statement as this. You remember that early on in his ministry, we are told that he marveled at their unbelief, the unbelief of his own townspeople at Nazareth, for instance, and the unbelief of others in cities like Capernaum and various other places. Our Lord looked on and seemed, I say, to be quite amazed and astonished at the reaction of his own generation to him. Here he was, and we must try to conjure up the picture in our mind's eye, in order that we may see exactly the setting, the background to this particular statement. Here he is, the very eternal Son of God, the incarnate in the flesh, standing before these people, in all the glory of his divine human person. It is obvious from the very records that there was that about our Lord's very physical appearance that could attract people and astonish them. Here he is, I say, looking at them, and not only that, speaking to them, teaching them, expounding scriptures to them telling them the truth about God, and the truth about themselves, and the truth about himself. Here he is with all this extraordinary teaching, such as you have in the Sermon on the Mount, and in his parables, and in other teaching. Oh, it's not surprising that a soldier who was sent to arrest him on one occasion, went back without him and said, Never men spake like this man. He disobeyed orders. There was something about the very person, the very personality of our Lord, and especially these words that he spoke. The men just couldn't do it, and taking this risk, he just goes back and gives that report. Well, here is our Lord doing this, and in addition, performing his miracles and working his mighty works. These people were eyewitnesses of these things. They literally had happened. The blind were receiving their sight. The lame were being made to walk. The deaf were being made to hear, the lepers were being cleansed, even the dead were being raised. These things were not done in a corner. He was generally followed by a great crowd, and the crowd witnessed these things. But in spite of all this, the people, as he here tells them, and we are reminded of it, did not seem to understand. They didn't see the meaning of it all. Why is it he says, that how is it that he do not discern this time? They don't seem to realize what's happening, and it's not merely the truth about him. because before our Lord began on his public ministry, you remember there was another preacher, John the Baptist, a most astounding man, a man who lived in the wilderness was clad only with a leathern girdle and a camel hair shirt. He didn't live like anybody else. He didn't eat like anybody else. His food consisted of nothing but locusts and wild honey. A man who spent his time in the wilderness and suddenly began to speak and to preach. A fiery man of God, a prophet of God, a man who preached a great message of repentance, for the remission of sins. And the people had gone crowding out unto him. He was obviously a phenomenon. Nothing like this had been seen within living memory. For 400 years, no such prophet had appeared in Israel. But here is this astounding man. And they had gone, I say, and had listened to him. He was a phenomenon. Well, then comes our Lord himself in the way that I've described. And yet the people seem to be apathetic. They don't seem to be understanding. They don't seem to be able to see the significance of all this. And here is our Lord having spent a certain length of time in his ministry, pausing, as it were, and turning upon them and asking this question, what is it that accounts for your inability? What's the matter with you? Why is it that you don't see the significance of John's ministry and of my ministry? Why don't you see what it all means? What is it that is blinding you to the very thing that is taking place before your eyes? Well, as was not infrequently the case with him, our Lord not only puts the question, but he also answers it. And he gives us in these words an analysis of the failure of the men and women of his own age and generation to realize the significance both of John and of himself. He puts these two together always. You remember we've got a similar example of that in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, where he is confronted by the criticism of people, and he says, What can be done to please you? John came neither eating nor drinking, and ye say he hath a devil. The son of man cometh eating and drinking. Ye say, Behold a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. What can be the matter with you? What can be done with you? Whatever we do is wrong. You seem to be utterly blind to the significance of these ministries. What I say, he fortunately gives us an analysis of it. He tells them very plainly why exactly it is that they are guilty of this terrible failure. And I'm calling your attention to it not because we are animated with some kind of antiquarian interest in these people of nearly 2,000 years ago. I'm directing attention to it because what our Lord tells us here about these people is still the truth about all who are not Christian, about all who don't realize the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll go further. It is a word to us this very night about men and women who even today do not see the real meaning and significance of the very events which are taking place in the modern world. It is still his diagnosis, his analysis of men and women who cannot read the signs of the times. The signs of the times when he was here, the signs of the times since then the signs of the times tonight, the signs of the times today, at this very modern juncture in the history of the human race. I think that I can show you that here there is a perfect analogy. As the men and women of his own time and generation seem to be absolutely blind to the significance of what was happening before them, so I suggest to you that the tragedy of the world tonight is The failure of mankind to realize the inner meaning and significance, even of the political and international events which are being enacted before our very eyes. Well, now, let me work this out with you. This has always been the trouble with mankind from the very beginning. There are endless illustrations of it in the Bible. The Bible is a book of history. It is specifically a book of history. It's history plus a comment on history. Or, as they're fond of putting it today, it is fact plus interpretation of the fact. In other words, you are given accounts, running right through the Bible from beginning to end, of men and women ending in disaster. Generations ending in disaster. Disaster. On one occasion, the whole world, apart from eight people, ending in disaster. There are all these grand illustrations. The flood, the various defeats of Israel, the captivities of Israel, and so on. They're all but illustrations of the same thing. This curious, fatal inability of the people to realize what was happening before their eyes their failure to see, I say, the inner meaning and significance of the very historical events through which they were passing. This kind of obduracy that stands between them and true enlightenment. That's the thing with which our Lord is here dealing. And the explanation, I say, is this. The Bible says that the real cause of all that can be put in one word, and it is the word sin. Sin is that which blinds men to the truth about himself and to the truth about God. And the whole history of the human race, as you find it in the Bible, and it's confirmed abundantly in all secular histories, the real trouble is, I say, that man is incapable of seeing the real meaning of events because he's in a state of sin. Now then, what is it that sin leads to? Well, here our Lord gives us an exposition of it. Let me say again, as I did last Sunday evening, that I'm calling attention to this for this great reason. The message of this book is that there is but one way of deliverance and of salvation. It is that which is to be found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But you remember what happened to him when he came into this world. We are passing through these weeks that lead on to Good Friday to the reminder and to the remembrance of his death upon a cross. We are living in the times again when men are saying away with him, crucify him. And we are just asking the question what is it that accounts for that tragic failure to realize who he is and the meaning of his coming and the significance of what he has done. Why is it, he asks, that you cannot discern this time? What's the matter with you? And here is his own answer. The first thing that he says about life as the result of sin is that it is characterized by a curious contradictoriness. There is in life and in men as the result of sin and the fall a most extraordinary contradictory element And uh, this is something which he shows us very plainly in his picture. Do you remember how he put it? He puts it like this. He says, "When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say there cometh a shower." And uh, you're absolutely right. So it is. The shower does come. And again, he says, "When he see the south wind blow, you say there's going to be heat." And it cometh to pass. You're absolutely right. Now, he says there is no question at all about this. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. That's all right. That's looking at one aspect of men, isn't it? Here were these people. Evidently, they're able, they're intelligent, they're very acute observers, They just uh, don't go on living from hand to mouth and uh, from day to day. No, no, no. They keep their eyes open. They've got their wits about them. They've got minds. They've got intelligence. They've got understanding. And they have made a careful record of these things. They've said, you know, it's an interesting thing that uh, when uh, the wind uh, goes there to the west, it generally means that rain's going to come. So then when you see the wind in the west, you say... Uh, There cometh a shower, and you're right, absolutely. And likewise with that south south wind. You've kept your records, you've made your observations, you've indulged in your scientific analysis, and when you see that, you say, there's going to be a drought, heat is coming. And you're absolutely right every time. And yet, says our Lord, the astounding thing is that though that is so absolutely true of you, With regard to these things that are being enacted before your very eyes, you're as blind as bats. You just don't see it. You're looking at things, but you don't see them. You're seeing without perceiving. What's the matter? You're such contradictory creatures. There is this kind of dualism about you. On the one side so amazing, on the other so utterly hopeless. Life as the result of sin is full of contradictions. Man seems to be at war with himself. He seems to be living a double life. He's a kind of dual personality. That's the first thing our Lord tells us about life as the result of sin and as the result of the fall. And if it was true of the men and women of the generation of our Lord, oh, how true it is of this day and this generation to which you and I belong. Isn't this the most obvious thing about life in this world tonight? Just this very thing. Look at modern men. I could keep you for hours in giving an account of his success. Look at his ability. Man seems to have reached almost the very acme of his own ability, look at the astounding advances in knowledge and especially in science during the past hundred years. The thing is almost incredible. It almost baffles description, leading up eventually to this astounding feat of being able to split even the atom, something that former scientists who were great men had said that could never happen, it was just impossible. They didn't even believe that the atom was divisible, but now it has actually been divided. And all the release of power, and all this tremendous possibility. Man, as you look at him from one angle, is remarkably amazing. Look at his knowledge. You can look at it not only from the standpoint of physics, and this nuclear physics, Take almost any branch of knowledge that you like and you'll find that it's the same. It's advanced all along the line. Look at this astounding discovery of uh, Sir Alexander Fleming who died so suddenly the other afternoon and all that that has meant and all that it's led to. No, it's no part of the preaching of the gospel to minimize these things. The gospel of Jesus Christ places no premium upon ignorance No, no, it faces facts and it recognizes facts. And as our Lord said of these men, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. Let me pay my humble tribute to modern men and all his inventive genius and all the brilliance of his research and all the astounding and amazing results. Knowledge has grown and grown tremendously in a gigantic sense. Man is standing at the very apex of his own achievements. Never has man been so marvelous, so wonderful in his knowledge and in the range of his accomplishments. But is that the whole truth about men? Isn't it equally true to say that never has men revealed himself in his tragic failure more than he's doing at this present hour? You see the contradictoriness. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but, and their fatal but is still with us, scaling the heights down in the depths. Now this is, I say, the whole essence of the modern tragedy and the modern problem, that man at one and the same time is a brilliant success and a tragic failure. He's up, he's down. He seems to be living this double kind of life. There is this dualism about him. This curious conflict and contradiction has come in so that man belies himself and his own achievement. He is at one and the same time success and failure. Are we aware of this, my dear friends? Do we see this? We surely must be seeing it. In this twentieth century, that has led to these amazing and astounding advances, look at it, with its wars and its troubles and its problems and its threat of further troubles and further disasters, never has life been so uncertain and insecure, never has man in a sense been more unhappy when he should be so supremely happy. What's the matter with him? That's the question. What is the explanation of this contradictoriness? But let me hurry to the second thing. Life as the result of sin is not only contradictory, it is eventually futile. And that, of course, is much more serious. You might say, in a sense, that that contradictory element could be dismissed partly, at attenuate, as an academic and a theoretical consideration. But it can't be, because it leads to a final futility. And the final futility is this, that all our success, eventually, is of no value to us because we have failed in the most important thing of all. Now, it's a very extraordinary thing how this twelfth chapter of the, of the gospel, according to St. Luke, is full of this particular idea. There, early on in this chapter, we have that astounding story of the men who came and interrupted our Lord in his preaching by saying this to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And our Lord turned to the men and said, Men, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And then he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And then he goes to tell the story of the rich fool, you remember, this amazing success again. The man who'd become so successful that his own success had become an embarrassment to him. He'd become so wealthy that his barns were too small. And he says, I must pull them down and build greater barns, because I don't know what to do with this ground of mine that is producing so plentifully. How can I bestow my fruits and where? I must build these greater barns. And he turned to his soul and he said, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years, take thine ease, eat, drink, And be merry. Well, you've never seen a more successful man, have you? He's bursting with success. But yet we read this, But God said to him, Thou fool, thou simpleton, thou maniac, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? The great success is an abject failure. The man who seems to have done everything perfectly has really nothing in the end and he goes out of life empty-handed. Why? Well, I say it's just a perfect illustration of how this sinful life is absolutely futile. It always ends like that. It always leads to nothing. And all the vaunted, bursted success leads to nothing but a final failure. Why? Well, again, I think our Lord, by his illustration, shows us why. It is all futile because all our wisdom and understanding and success and ability is directed to the wrong ends. Here it is once more, when ye see a cloud rise in the west, straightway ye say there cometh a shower. Quite right. Right. When you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. You can discern the signs, the face of the sky and of the earth. Quite so. But why is it, how is it that he do not discern this time? What's the matter with them? Well, I'll tell you. All their ability and all their ingenuity is given to things material, And not at all to things spiritual. Interested in the wind in the west and in the south? Why? Well, of course, as farmers, as these men were, the wind and the direction of the wind was a very important point for them. If you don't have a certain amount of rain, your crops are not going to grow and develop and you're going to lose accordingly. So a farmer's got to be very interested in the wind and in the rain and the sun and all these things. Because it's going to affect his crops, his yield, his increase, and eventually his bank balance. This is life. Got to live after all. You've got to get on. And you see, you must have enough. Oh, yes, man is tremendously interested in the material. And he gives all his energy and his ingenuity there. He's marvelous at that, But not to the spiritual. And isn't that the very truth? about the modern men and about the modern world, take all these developments that I've been referring to. Uh, well, where are they and in what realm are they? Well, don't you see that all along they're solely in the realm of the material? We have perfected our processes. We've got a different method of harvesting. We've got a different method of plowing. Horses given up, tractors now for plowing, for harrowing for reaping, for carking, for storing, for everything. And it's wonderful. saves labor. And you get better crops. You can dry them in a new way. You've become almost independent of the weather itself. You can produce artificial rain. You can heat the ground with pipes underneath. You're almost independent of everything. It's marvelous. It's astounding. I say I'm not here to detract from it. You can cure diseases that used to be always fatal. You know there are certain diseases... Why, even twenty and thirty years ago, the moment you diagnosed them, you might as well write the death certificate. But that's no longer the case. These new drugs have absolutely revolutionized the whole position. All glory to them. Praise the name of famous men. Pay your compliments. Eulogize the great scientists and the great discoverers in all these realms. But don't forget that it's all in the realm of the material. It's all a question of food and drink. It's all a question, ultimately, of these bonds. You see, our Lord's been speaking about it. Listen to him putting it like this. In verse 31 of this chapter, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. They're interested in these things, and not at all in the kingdom of God. The material... Food and drink and housing. Oh, every time the exhibition comes round, the ideal home exhibition or whatever you call it, there's some new gadget, something to make life more comfortable. And it's marvelous. I agree, press your button and the thing's almost done for you. Astounding. But it never rises above the material, the spiritual is utterly and absolutely ignored. Earth, sky, not the soul, not heaven. Another way of putting it is to put it like this, all this ingenuity and cleverness is directed only towards the temporal and entirely ignores the eternal. Wind and rain, of course, seasons, crops. Yes, like this man with his barns, what was his mistake was just one thing. This fool who seems to be so clever and so successful had just forgotten that while he could take out a fresh lease on a bit of ground or on a building, you can't take out a fresh lease on life. This night, thy soul shall be required of thee. He knew all about earthly landlords. He'd forgotten the heavenly landlords. Oh, yes, he could extend bonds. He could extend things on the temporal sequence. But what about the eternal? He hadn't thought about it at all. Oh, I mustn't keep you. Isn't this the whole trouble with life at this moment? You see, we have concentrated entirely upon the material and upon the temporal. And we have forgotten about the spiritual and the eternal and the everlasting and that is the essence of modern man's tragedy. You see while he's successful in all these other respects. Where's he failing? He's failing in life itself. He's mastering the elements, he is harnessing the ocean, he's splitting the atom. But look at him in terms of human relationships. Look at him in the marriage relationship. Look at him from the standpoint of chastity and purity. Look at him from the standpoint of honesty. You see, he's failing there. He's so successful in the others, but here he's breaking down so that in the same newspaper, you see, on one column, the last amazing discovery of man, science has leapt forward. In the other column, you see that yet another man has behaved as a cad, or another woman has ignored the sensitive feelings of her little children, leave alone her husband, and has walked out. It's all because of this interest, I say, in the temporal and the material and the ignoring of the spiritual and of the eternal. And life has become futile. What's the point of all our scientific inventions if we don't know what to do with them? What's the value of splitting the atom if it's simply going to blow your civilization to nothing? What's the value of being able to have all these gadgets and all these improvements in life? If my heart is wrong... And I haven't a partner to live with because of my lust or her lust. That's the question. How futile it is. And life, in spite of all the growth and all the advances and all the developments, is being revealed in its tragic futility this very night. But come, I must go on to the next thing our Lord says about it, which is is this, that it's hypocrisy. Did you notice that? Ye hypocrites, he says. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Hypocrisy, you notice. Surely, says someone, that's rather a hard sentence. If he had called them fools, I wouldn't have said anything, says someone, but why does he say that they're hypocrites? I don't see any trace of hypocrisy in that. These men can read the signs in the heavens and in the earth. They cannot read the signs of the times. Well, that isn't hypocrisy, whatever else it may be. Ah, yes, says our Lord, it is hypocrisy, and it is nothing but hypocrisy. And it is here we see the profound character of our Lord's analysis of human nature. He doesn't merely look at the surface of life, he knows it beneath the surface. He knows what is in men, he knows what is in the heart of men, and here he exposes it. And this is what he says, this is how he proves it. Mankind, face to face with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ, generally gives one of two main excuses for its failure. The first excuse is that there is insufficient light. Now, you can't read these Gospels without seeing that constantly the Pharisees and scribes went to our Lord with just that very complaint. They said, now, you are making certain claims. You know, they said, we'd be very ready indeed to believe in you if you only made it quite unmistakable to us. Why don't you give us a sign, they said when Moses was here he gave a sign because he gave them bread from heaven what sign do you show if only you gave us greater light they said if only you added to our information well then we'd be ready to believe in you but you're not giving us sufficient data that is always one of the complaints it was with these people about whom our Lord speaks and that's why he calls them hypocrites it's just not true it's a lie. It isn't the true answer. Now, let me show you that because the modern man tends to say exactly the same thing, doesn't he? The case is this, that the facts are not sufficient. And modern man wants some further evidence, some further demonstration. Well, now, there's a very simple answer to that. It cannot be that there is inadequate light for this good reason. Take these people at the time of our Lord himself. Here they are complaining that he hasn't given sufficient signs, that he hasn't authenticated himself as he should, and they're asking for something further. But... There were other people living next door to them and by their sides at that very time who had seen exactly the same things, who had heard the same words and had observed the same miracles, and who had believed. Well, very well, the fact that there is enough light for one man to believe means that there is enough light for all men to believe. If you say, my friend, that you have not sufficient facts, well, answer me this question. What about the facts that have been sufficient for the saints of all the centuries? What about the facts that have been sufficient to take many men as martyrs to the stake or even to the guillotine? What are the facts that have already satisfied all this mighty procession of men who have adorned the life of the Christian church no no the light has come the light is there the Christ was before them the miracles were speaking the words were speaking the light was abundant it isn't more light you need all the evidence that is necessary for the salvation of your soul is already in this book it's all here And I'm adding to it the testimony of the history of the church. There it is for you. I ask you, what's the matter? It isn't that there is insufficient data. No, no, our Lord says it's this. It is that men and women refuse to face the light. This is the condemnation, he says, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And isn't this the simple truth? Haven't we all done it? We all have rejected Christianity before we've ever accepted it. You don't start as a Christian in this life and in this world, and there are dozens of people in this congregation, without going any further, who once upon a time dismissed Christianity. They said, there's nothing in it. They said, ha-ha, it's an old story, it's played out. People used to believe that sort of rubbish, that sob stuff for women and children, but no longer, modern knowledge and understanding... There are dozens of people in this congregation who have once said that. But what was their position? It was this. They'd never read the Bible. They'd never faced the facts at all. They dismissed Christianity without even considering it. They said there was nothing in it without knowing even what it said. Is not that the simple truth? That is what men and women do. They've never faced the light. they never considered the facts. My dear friend, before you tell me that there isn't enough light, I ask you to do this at any rate. I ask you to read this book from cover to cover. I ask you to pray about it. I ask you to try to grasp it and to understand it. Look at its light. The light to lighten the Gentiles hath already appeared. The day star from on high hath already arisen. God's Son has come. The facts are here. The sun is in full meridian. Consider the facts. It is hypocrisy to say you need more light when the fact is that you've never faced the light, never turned to it, never considered what it has to say. That's hypocrisy. You're pretending to have a difficulty which isn't real. You're not saying the truth about yourself. You hypocrite, says Christ. But let me show you another aspect of this hypocrisy, which is this. The second reason men give for not being Christians is that they have their intellectual difficulties. It isn't now, you see, that there isn't sufficient fact or data. Ah, yes, they say, I have read your Bible, but I mean intellectual difficulties. I, I just can't get this question of miracles I don't understand this question of two natures in one person. This talk about incarnation and things like that in certain histories in the Old Testament. Now they say, I would that I could believe these things. I'd like to be a Christian, but you know, I've got a mind, I've got a brain, and my intellect is not satisfied. I want satisfaction to my intellectual problems and difficulties. How often is that said? But still you notice how the Lord goes on saying that that is nothing but sheer hypocrisy. And why? Well, again, for this good reason. There are many people, you'll have to admit, who are good Christians and who are not imbeciles. They've got brains. They've got minds. They've got intellects, they've had education, they've been to the universities, they've taken firsts in science as well as arts, they've had scientific training, they've got minds, brains, knowledge, culture, and yet they believe all this, the same things that you say you can't. There is only one logical deduction to draw from that. Whatever else your difficulties are, they're not intellectual difficulties. You see, if they are intellectual difficulties, you're saying that these other people are fools. That somehow or another they've committed intellectual suicide. No, that's just sheer personal abuse. It isn't argument at all. You can't dispute their minds and their brains. They've got them and they've got the same facts as you have in front of these great brains. And yet they believe they haven't got this difficulty well, what is the difficulty? It isn't intellectual. Well, what is it? It's moral. And there's no question about this. That's what our Lord means by calling these people hypocrites. This is the condemnation that light is come into the world. Well, why don't people believe it? Here's the answer. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds... We're evil, the trouble about Christianity is not intellectual, it's moral. The trouble is that men know that if they believe this Christ and go after him, there are certain things they've got to give up. The moment you meet him and face him and go after him, there are certain things you've got to say goodbye to once and forever. You've got to say goodbye to lust and passion and evil desire. Drink and gambling and these things have got to go, not because I say so, but because they can't live in the presence of Christ. And men know that and they don't want to give up these things. It's the moral ethical demand of Christ that men hate, so they put up the camouflage of intellectual difficulties and it's dishonest, it's sure hypocrisy. They're not speaking the truth. They're not really giving the reason. It's because he convinces them and convicts them of sin that they won't go after him. That's hypocrisy. And it is the whole trouble with the modern world this evening. The clever people who reject Christ reject him not because they're clever, but because they resent his demands. It's the only reason. The difficulty, I say, is never intellectual. It is always moral. And I don't hesitate to assert that. It's this love of evil... Pride, perhaps, love of your own understanding, and the dislike of having to say, even I with my great brain, before him, become a fool like all others, and I know nothing. It takes some doing that. But you've got to do it before you'll ever know him and ever know his salvation. The great man has to become nothing. He has to become a fool. He has to become as a little child. He has to be born again, like everybody else. And oh, how difficult it is. And it's that that galls. It's that that proves to be the rub and the obstacle. The moral, the ethical. It's not the intellectual at all. And therefore it is sure hypocrisy to pretend that it is. But let me say just a word on the last thing, the tragedy of all this. You can discern the face of the earth and of the skies but how is it that he do not discern this time our lord sounds almost frantic doesn't he he almost sounds desperate why well he knew this you see he has come into the world it's the great turning point of all history it's the most climactic event of all the human story god has sent forth his own son it's the fullness of the times and it's going to be a turning point, and especially for these Jews who are in front of him. If they don't believe him, there's only one thing awaiting them, and that is disaster. The kingdom is going to be taken from them and given to a nation bearing forth the fruits thereof. Their very city is going to be destroyed. Their temple is to be reduced to a heap of rubble. That's what's coming. John the Baptist had preached it. He said, flee from the wrath to come. Repent. The time is at hand. And our Lord had preached the same message. And he'd given proof that it was true by his miracles and by all that he was and all he said. And here are these people who can read other signs. They see nothing in it. And they're going headlong to disaster. And they're not aware of it. There's no tragedy greater than that. They didn't see it. They didn't see the meaning of him, of the times, this time. All that depended upon it. They'd never realized it. And his heart breaks for them. It was always the trouble with them, as I've reminded you. It was the thing that accounted for all their disasters. They looked at Noah and they laughed at him. Building his ark, they said, the man's a fool. He's a star-craving lunatic. What's he talking about? Everything goes on as it's gone on always. A hundred and twenty years have passed since he first began to do it. Nothing's going to happen. They knew not until the flood came and carried them all away. It was the same at Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the same when they were conquered by their enemies and carried into captivity. It was the same in A.D. 70. It has always been the same. The signs were there, obvious, and they were so clever in other realms, don't see them. And my dear friends, it's still the same. Mankind shows no signs that I can see of being sobered by the terrible things that are happening in the world today. They are terrible. But mankind is not sobered. We still go on with the pleasures, don't we? On with the dance. Put on your comic turn, your humorist. Go and have a drink. Get away from it. Go and enjoy yourself. Forget it. Turn your backs on it all, isn't that the attitude? These things are happening before us, and yet mankind isn't serious, even, leave alone being sobered, They don't discern the signs of the times. And there's no point in being so clever that you can split the atom if you don't see that that may produce the end of your world. Well, according to Bertrand Russell, as I quoted the other night, perhaps even this year, And what's it all mean? It means this. The signs of the times are still plain and clear. The world is as it is because of sin, because of men's alienation from God, because in its preoccupation with the material and the temporal, it's forgotten God and the eternal and the soul and an everlasting destiny. It's because it hasn't faced that and is living to the other that it's in trouble and worse trouble is coming. Yes, and the whole time this Christ is there in the background facing the world and pronouncing a final judgment Things seem to get worse and more and more terrible, don't they? Wars have always been bad and horrible. They've never been as bad as they are now. They'll become worse, my friends, and they're all but adumbrations. They're prophecies of a final judgment of the whole world in Christ. You see, contemporary history is proving what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's no advantage at all in being learned and wealthy and cultured and having understanding in a thousand and one things. If you're not right with God, it'll all go wrong. And the world today in its history is proving that. The signs are being verified. Can't you see them? Can't you see that the wind is in the south? Can't you see the judgment of God coming? Don't you see that the message of the Christ Is being proclaimed by contemporary history. And that, therefore, the one thing for us all to do at this moment is this to stop thinking about everything for a moment and just to ask this question what happens to me when I die? Where am I going? Do I know God? Am I going to be with him? Or am I going to spend an eternity in misery that I cannot even imagine and describe? Which is it? My friend, can't you see that that's the one question that matters? These people wouldn't do that. They'd apply their minds to everything but to this. Is that true of you? Can't you see how utterly foolish it is? How futile it is? How idiotic it is? How mad it is? Put your soul first, your eternal destiny first. Settle that, and you'll see there's only one way to settle it. It's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to bear the guilt of that sin, of your forgetfulness of God. And because he's borne it for you, God will forgive you, and he'll reveal himself to you, and he'll make you his own child, and eventually receive receive you into glory. So that whether the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, or any other bomb is used and the world ends, it will make no difference to you. You will be safe, eternally safe, in Jesus Christ. Apply your mind, apply your heart to God, your own soul, your relationship to him and see the eternal significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.